Welcome to the Living the Dream podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast, a show where I interview guests that teach, motivate, and inspire. Today, I am joined by Joseph Gioconda. Joseph is a unique combination of a successful trial attorney and a successful horror author. Joe, when he was young, was training to be a priest, but he wanted to live a secular life. So he went to law school and he was able to use his writing skills and power of persuasion to become a successful author. Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Why don't you start off by giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, when I was when I was a young man, I thought I might want to pursue the vocation of being a Catholic priest. And I attended the seminary for four years in New York. I ended up leaving and not wanting to become a priest. I didn't feel like vocation was was for me. And I later got married and had uh, had two children. And I went to law school and became a trial attorney, as you mentioned, which I've been doing for 25 years now. And along the way, I found it challenged to, but I wanted to overcome it, to be a fiction writer because my training was in being a lawyer and my writing skills were, you know, writing legal briefs and contracts and boring documents like that. And I wanted to be able to write fiction because I'm a, I'm a fan of fiction. I love movies. I love reading books, especially horror, paranormal and thrillers and mysteries, suspense books. And so I wanted to try my hand at being actually a writer as well as a reader. Well, other than the horror genre of writing, what has been a major influence on your life? The other influences I would say are being a lawyer because my writing, I I want to be precise and I want it to be to the extent that it's based on a true story. I want to stay true to original facts and documents. So when I write historical fiction, I try to do lots and lots of research. And the other influence on me, I think, is as a as a reader, as a fan of horror and of thrillers and mystery books, I think great writers and those genres have influenced me as a writer as well. Well, you know, the term horror kind of carries, I guess, a bad name. So what is your opinion on the term horror? And how do you feel that what what can we do to get past negativity of that term? It's a, it's a good question. You know, I think over the years, horror became cliche. I don't know how else to describe it. Kind of mainstream to the point of being dull and not particularly scary. And what I consider true horror is not necessarily the traditional, necessarily the haunted house or that kind of thing. True horror can be in in really anything that we find truly terrifying. It could be scientists who decides that they're going to invent and unleash a deadly virus to destroy humanity. That could be terrifying, obviously. Could be a serial killer who is 
amoral and has no regard for human life and feels that you know murdering people is a, a pleasurable thing and has absolutely no sense of conscience those are true horrible stories true they strike terror in people and i think it's important to not be desensitized to those things so that they so the concept of horror just becomes cliche true horror is whatever we find very scary to our core of our being well what do you see horror going in the next few years, given the current state of the world? Well, I think one of the most important developments in horror has been inviting diverse voices. And and I think that having a diversity of views into what is truly scary throughout the world, for example, in my, one of my books is an anthology called fleeting chills. And I invited in addition to myself, nine other authors from around the world, from China to the United Kingdom to other countries, to write what they found frightening and terrifying. And I found that sheer terror and horror is truly universal if it's effective. So I think you're going to see a continued development of the diversity of voices so that people who are from other cultures can translate what they find terrifying into world. I also think that you're going to see an evolution of just having gone through COVID and seeing all the implications for society of of a deadly virus, I think is going to open up people's eyes to fears and concepts that, you know, 10 years ago probably weren't realistic. And I think that people are finding the developments from COVID really scary and that that will affect things. But, you know, hard develops with the world, right? As the world changes, what we perceive as frightening changes. So it's hard to predict where it's going to go, but I think those are directions we're likely to see. Why do you think people still enjoy reading horror despite its sometimes dark and violent context? I think horror taps into our unconscious fears. Uh, If you think about our experience, our shared experience as a species, you go back 10,000 or 15,000 years and people were living out really exposed to the elements and exposed to warring tribes and warring factions of other tribes and animals, wild animals. And, you know, we had no electricity. And so you were living out in the darkness. So on some level, the darkness has always been a source of fear for humanity because it represents the unknown. And in many senses, horror, well-written horror in books and in, as well as in movies, captures that fear of the unknown. And I think that violence is only one part of horror in that darkness, right? The darkness itself is frightening, and it may be because there's something threatening in it, like an animal or, or an enemy, but it's just the unknown itself. And I think horror books and well-written well books, at least, tap into that fear, regardless of whether or not it is necessarily violent. What do you feel like is missing from the horror genre? I think the, as I mentioned earlier, the diversity of, of, of voices, I think is missing. I also think creativity is missing. I think what happens in a lot of the horror genre is there's just a recycling of whatever uh, seems to have worked. And so you see sequels over and over and over again, because the producers and the investors don't want to take a chance. They want to just basically gamble on something that they think is likely to work 
and and sell. And what we've seen over you know, decades now is that the books and movies in horror that are the most groundbreaking are the ones that are successful. And so when you constantly just reinvent the same story over and over again, I think you're really desensitizing the world and you're not going to be successful. I mean, who wants to see the same boring haunted house story, you know, a millionth time, you want to hear something new. And I think that's what's really missing in the horror genre is the creativity of, of exploring things from different perspectives. Got a couple of questions for you about the writing process. Mm-hmm. What aspects of the writing process do you find the most difficult? There's two parts of writing that are really hard. One is getting started, and the other is getting finished. Getting started is always challenging because you have all of these ideas in your head and you don't know which direction they're going to go. And you're trying to get motivated to overcome that initial hurdle of getting started, putting pen to paper, so to speak. And then once you get started and you're on a roll, you just start writing and writing and writing the hard part, an equally hard part is finishing the story and putting, you know, closing the book and saying, okay, that's my first draft. It's easy to fall into a pit of either not getting started or not getting finished, right? It's, it's, you have to set limits on yourself. So finding ideas for a good writer is not hard. It's the discipline of starting a project and finishing a project. That is to me, the hardest part of the process. Talk about how you have developed as a writer over the years. Well, I think with fiction, I started with a desire to make it perfect. And that's a very common beginner's fallacy to fall into. You you know, a writer once said to me, your first book is probably going to be your worst because you've never done it before. And yet you want it to be your best. You want it to be perfect. And writing requires that you start out and you want to have high goals, but you have to be realistic and just get it done because the way you're going to improve is by moving on to new projects and continuing the process and not just getting stuck. And it took me a very long time to develop past that point of realizing that it's never going to be perfect. It's going to be as good as you can do. And then you need to move on. Now, I think it's this sort of flip side where when, as you write more, you realize that not only is it never going to be perfect, you just have to get, get, get it out there and get it done because you don't know it's impossible to predict what's going to be successful and what isn't. And so the danger on the flip side is you could get too sloppy and too loose. And when you look at writers, great writers over the years, some of them had great successes early on. And then later in their career, they started mailing it in and their books, you know, they didn't stay at a high quality. And people know that they keep reading them in a hope that they're going to recapture their former glory. But I think established writers can fall into the flip side of it, if not, not only not seeking perfection, but sort of mailing it in and not getting it done. I think as I develop over the course of time, I want to try to find that middle ground of not, you know, aiming for perfection every time, but also not lowering my standards as well. Let's talk about your books. Tell us about your books, kind of give us a brief description of them and what people can expect when they read them. Absolutely. So the first one that I wrote is called The Pope's Butcher, and it's also available in Spanish. The title is El Carnicero del Papa. And The Pope's Butcher is basically about, it's a true story, about a man who lived in the 15th century who was a priest, and he 
became one of the most successful, most prolific serial killers in human history. He had all of the traits of what we use in the modern world call a serial killer. He was in his 30s. He was a man who had the ability to hide his crimes. He was intelligent. He was educated. And he was able to get away with, literally with murder. He killed hundreds of women that were his targets primarily he used the power of the church to cover up his crimes by becoming an inquisitor. He worked in the church's inquisition. And what the inquisition did is they hunted down witchcraft, witches and her heretics, and they, you know, burned them at the stake kind of thing. But he was not satisfied with that. He, he wanted to torture and kill women in gruesome ways because he was not just a well-intentioned man i believe i think he was a very very evil man and a very sick man and the story is not just about him but the the milieu that he lived in was fascinating because the church was covering up his murders they knew exactly what he was doing and people were just too scared to confront him and oppose him and so he was doing some very strange things within within the confines of the church and by doing those things he was becoming a historical figure of great evil. So the story is basically about, as I said, it's basically not just about one man, but it's about the whole milieu that he was operating in. And it traces the story of a fictional character who we don't, you know, basically I used as a way to explore the history and understand exactly what happened in the true story of this serial killer. So that's he travels throughout Europe. He uncovers a dark conspiracy that happened within the church to cover up these murders. And so the Pope's Butcher was, as I said, based extensively on history that I did. But it is a story. It is a story about redemption and love and good and evil and, and explores all of the ways in which the world copes with the question and the problem of evil. Okay, well, you want to talk about your other books or, or you can tell us sure. about any projects that you're currently working on or upcoming projects that we need sure. to know about? Sure. So my second book, which I just released earlier this month, is called Fleeting Chills. And Fleeting Chills is an anthology of 33 creepy, short and scary horror stories written by myself and nine other authors, international authors, as I mentioned, and they are exactly that. They're creepy, short, and scary. They, they don't have any one particular theme. They really explore all the different things, different topics that people find terrifying, at, you know, ranging from, from the paranormal, serial killers, people going missing, people having visions and hallucinations and exploring all kinds of things that go bump in the night. And so it's a perfect anthology for people who like short stories and want to enjoy them, especially in this Halloween season. And that is also available on Amazon. I should mention both Pope's Witcher and Fleet and Children are available on Amazon. The third book I want to mention is coming out in the middle of October, launching that in Salem, Massachusetts, in front of the mansion in which the, which the house set in, the story is set in, and it's called Salem's Ropes, the name of that book. And Salem's Ropes is about the Ropes Mansion and Garden. It's a real mansion that's been around for 300 years, and it has had quite a history throughout America. You know, it was built long before the United States was, was founded and still exists today in beautiful condition. And um, the history of that story, 
that mansion is sort of the story of America. It's, it went through many different hands, Ropes family, and it, it experienced many different murders, deaths, and suicides. It began with the Salem witch trials in the late 17th century. And then the owners experienced hardship because they were conflicted between supporting the crown in England or battling for independence. And because they took the wrong side, they supported the king. The owner was murdered by <clears throat> patriots, so to speak, in Massachusetts in the 1770s. And uh, then it went through a couple of other family heirs, the house, and then people would continue to die in the house in really gruesome and bizarre ways, inexplicable ways. One woman caught fire, her petticoat caught fire, and she burned to death. And so there have been many horrible stories. And the story goes that recently, like within the last century, there have been many, many stories of the paranormal occurring in that house from credible witnesses, in some cases, uh, guards who, who worked inside museum guides, as well as regular folks. And so the house is now a mansion, but I, sorry, a museum, the mansion is now a museum. And I wrote a story, a, a fictionalized story that draws on the true accounts of the things that happened in the, uh, in the ropes mansion over time. And the story is based on a fictional family that moves into the mansion in modern times and delves into the secrets of the house and where, where the curse could have come from. And it explores the origin of the curse of the Robes Mansion, which may go back as early as the Salem Witch Trials, and follows it through to modern times. Well, I know you're also a successful trial attorney. Let's talk about the biggest trial or maybe the most high-profile trial that you've ever tried. I've had some, some pretty interesting ones over the years. Most of my work is in the intellectual property um, space. So my clients tend to be very fa very uh, large fashion companies, entertainment companies, designers, entrepreneurs, folks like that. I think some of my most high profile tri trials involved people who were stealing very valuable brands and designs of my, des of my clients who were fashion designers. I've had the good fortune of representing clients like Hermes and Tiffany, companies like that. And the folks out there who ripped them off, they, they were infringers. That, that is, they were stealing intellectual property. They were stealing the good name of these designers who had worked very, very hard to develop the goodwill among customers in their whole approach or business model was to pass their products off as those of coming from the designers themselves. And so we've had many jury trials over the years and appeals. And I find it's really interesting that people respond very differently to the concept of owning an idea or owning a brand. And as a trial lawyer, you have to explain to a, to a jury exactly what it means to own a trademark or a copyright or a patent and have that brand stolen and infringed upon by someone who's essentially a thief. That's what a brand counterfeiter is. And so my most high profile trust probably related to that topic. And um, that's been going on. I still do that today. I have some very big clients from around the world and they still, and I still work for them. The writing, the, the fiction writing is, is really my hobby, sort of a part-time hobby that I hope someday becomes a full-time gig, <laughs> but for now, I still practice law. Go ahead and throw out your contact information where people can purchase your books, if you have a website and any social media links so people can connect with you. 
Okay, so what I would say is folks should start with Amazon. I have an author page on amazon.com that lays out all the different uh, projects that are available to buy from Amazon. All my books are available on Kindle Unlimited. They're available in paperback and they are or shortly will be available in Audible and uh, and audiobooks as well. So I would I would recommend folks start with Amazon and then they can check out I have websites for each of my books like thepopesbutcher.com is a, is a website devoted just to the book, but I really recommend folks start and with Amazon just because the book is available in so many different formats on there as well as audiobook. Do you have any final thoughts before we close it out? No, I just very much appreciate the opportunity and I hope your listeners found something interesting today and what I talked about and can look a little bit further into the the work I've been doing in these books and maybe they could find some time to to take a read and, and leave a nice review if they like it. Ladies and gentlemen, go to Amazon to purchase the books. Also, be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible after listening. Android listeners, go to the Google Play Store and download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app. Joe Gioconda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream. Dream.